Ron DeSantis, Donald Trump, and how the hell do we explain Florida? I'm Matt Robeson, Beyond Politics, Blue Amp channel on YouTube, and available wherever you get your podcasts. And I am here to introduce you, if you haven't found it already, to the Florida Squeeze. It's already a successful website, but it's about to become absolute must reading with the two leading Republican presidential contenders coming from the swamp and the whole epicenter of the political universe about to descend on Florida, a sentence that should send shivers down the spine of anyone old enough to remember the 2000 election. Kardik Krishnayer is the proprietor of the Florida Squeeze. He's an outstanding writer, blogger. You give this inside perspective because you know the state, you know the politics, and you know the people so darn well. And it's just a perspective that I don't think you get from the New York Times, which occasionally will airdrop someone into the epicenter of the swamp. Let's start off with a little bit of history here. I'm old enough to remember that 2000 election I alluded to a moment ago. And the reason it was a thing was that Florida was politically competitive. It was close. And there were these conservative Democrats, the Bill Nelsons and Bob Grahams of the world who could they could make a pretty good political living in Florida. And then you had kind of anodyne Republicans like Jeb Bush. And it was up for grabs. And that's why the whole 2000 election came down to 500 some odd votes in the state. And then things just got weird. How, to put this delicately, Cardick, how did Florida become batshit crazy? <laughs> yeah, I, as a veteran of the 2000 recount, that's really where I cut my teeth was those 36 days. I happened to be someone who was on the ground as an executive director of a local party that was in the middle of it and ended up having to deal with, I was in Palm Beach County, by the way, so epicenter, ground wow. zero. Yeah. and with this, the- this was, but wait, remind our listeners. Was this butterfly ballots or hanging chads? This was butterfly ballots. Broward, where I live now, was hanging chads. Uh, Although we had hanging chads in Palm Beach also. And uh, it was Jews for Buchanan. Right, yes. Which which was- Uh, People are noted lovers of Pat Buchanan. That's our thing. We love bagels and Pat Buchanan. It was crazy because by 7.15 election morning, we knew we had a problem. I was getting phone calls and I was- my assigned areas on election day were Jewish condos. What were traditionally Jewish condos, now the demographics have changed in those places. But in 2000, were entirely Jewish condos, 99% Democratic precincts, right? Precincts where Al Gore was going to get 99% of the vote. And suddenly you had people who were weeping, knowing they had made, they knew they made this mistake right away, but there was no way to remedy it. Unfortunately, that's what happened, that those, those areas decided the entire state. But you talk about Florida becoming batshit crazy since then from this 50-50 state, largely what happened is the Republicans used their advantages in the legislature, their ability to grind out statewide elections. Remember, DeSantis's re-election in 2022 was the first time a Republican running for governor had gotten more than 50% of the vote since 2006. Yet they've won every governor's election in that period. They've been winning with 49.8, I think Rick Scott got reelected with 47.9 because Libertarian and other third-party candidates have taken enough of the vote away. They've had a plurality, but not a majority in the state, but they've been able to use that control of the legislature. We know what gerrymandering does. We know what reapportionment when they control the process does 
to create such an advantage legislatively that they have pushed through the sort of legislation that I think was Karl Rove's wet dream to defund the left. And a lot of this happened when Jeb Bush was governor. So the Karl Rove analogy is apt. Tort reform, breaking the teachers union through school vouchers, pushing various types of legislation that made it difficult for more liberal people or liberal groups to organize and participate politically. And then as time is there a demographic on, change too? Is there yes? Is there a reason that they can Scooby do this and get away with it despite those pesky kids? Yeah. So my theory is partly because they were able to do that, they were able to trigger the demographic change. Huh? Florida became a less attractive place for more liberal people. It became less attractive for young professionals. So you would have a lot of young people who grew up in the state, then would go to college outside the state and stay outside the state. Young more liberal-minded professional people, tech people, those sorts of folks, or even people who would go to school within our state university system and then would get a job in, in, in Seattle or Silicon Valley or DC, wherever, and leave and never come back. And then they were being replaced by people who were very attracted to this sort of more conservative, libertarian type mindset when, and breaking unions and it's a right to work state. So that contributed. Right. So I think the demographic change, maybe some of it would have happened naturally anyway, but I think a lot of it had to do with legislation and pushing the advantage they developed through reapportionment to remake the state. And that's a lesson for other states where Republicans may have control of both the legislature and the governorship, that they can do these sorts of things. That's really fascinating because we tend to think of demographics driving politics rather than politics driving demographics. So there, there was this slide. It was still the case, as in much of America, in the mid-2000s, even up through the Tea Party era, that a really humdrum traditional Republican like a Jeb Bush could do okay. And Democrats could still be competitive. And it sounds like they really have continued to be competitive. They just can't get the upper hand. Is it possible that the fact that Republicans have been on such a winning streak, is that maybe just what statisticians would call spurious correlation? Because so many of these victories have been so narrow that it, it looks like there's a pattern, but really Democrats have just drawn unlucky yeah, there's some of that. And I have to say, part of it also is you mentioned the Tea Party. I think what happened with to make Florida as batshit crazy as it is, is that the Tea Party movement won primaries within the GOP 2010, 2012, 2014, right? So you go from the normal Republican, as you alluded to, the Jeb Bush style Republican. And we actually had in this state in the 1990s and 2000s, tons of what you would consider normies as Republicans, people who were traditionally anti-tax, they were economic conservatives, but on social issues, they like to avoid them. Some of them were even for gun control, right? We had actually until this session, we had pretty strong gun control state measures in the state passed by Republican legislatures because you had enough of those normie Republicans. But what ended up happening is they started losing GOP primaries to Tea Party types. And then that just accelerated with the MAGA movement, the Matt Gates of the world. And now you have a Republican Party that's the fringes and it's batshit crazy to use your term. But I think the Tea Party was the trigger, right? That it was actually a dynamic within their party that shifted the landscape in the state. And I don't know that they're by any means a majority of Republicans in the state, but we abolished 
so you mentioned 2000, the 2000 recount. One of the really hidden things the GOP did after that was they abolished the runoffs as, as a means of determining party nominees. So what ended up happening is it gave the most extreme Republican candidates the opportunity to win primaries, getting 20 or 25 percent of the vote in a primary when previously they go to a runoff and that kind of institutional Bush type Republican would get the 50 percent in a runoff. All of this stuff has led us to where we are. So it's essentially been a microcosm of the rest of America where political scientists used to argue basically that voters preferred something that's close to their average preference. And so you want to be close to the middle of the spectrum of politics in your local area because that would allow you to capture the most votes. And that has just gone totally off the rails in the last 20 years, but that's a phenomenon that's happened across the country. And it sounds like what you're saying is that some of the mechanics in Florida have leaned into that because what it's meant is that more extreme figures, once they emerge from the primary, because of there's so much polarization, there's such a gap between the two parties, you can get these really nutty people to, who behave in extreme ways to essentially be protected by the cloud of partisan fog around them. And that's what leads to all of this is a setup for let's talk about Ron DeSantis. We have to yeah. talk about the emergence of this guy. But I just wanted to underscore one earlier point you made, which is that there is some evidence behind what you're observing in terms of demographic shifts, where we've seen these non-metro area growth centers in Florida, which are at odds with the kind of population growth we've seen in other areas in the country. The biggest demographic growth in Florida has been in like the villages. It's been in like these non-metro areas with people who are over age 50, who tend to be more conservative. People who are more conservative, who are looking to retire someplace sunny, are choosing Georgia or Arizona. And disproportionately, people are sorting themselves or, or more Republican-leaning into, I'm going to retire to Florida. And so there, there is some data. The other thing that's interesting, and maybe we should just touch on this very quickly before we get into Ron DeSantis, is there's been a lot of sweating in the Democratic Party over are we losing the Latino vote? But that's been a very kind of different question in Florida because the Latino vote is so dominated by Cuban Americans who are much more Republican. What have you observed around that dynamic? Yeah, so two points here. You've made two excellent points. I've even looked at some data from the Chicagoland area showing that retirees from suburban Chicago, not just Cook County, but DuPage, Lake County, if they're more conservative, they come to the villages, they come to these ex-urban places, as we call them in Florida. They're kind of far-flung suburbs, right? They're not really suburban areas. They're these, but they're connected to metro areas. It's a weird phenomenon. And if they're more liberal, they're moving to Arizona. So I, directly what you're saying, we see evidence of that in Chicago. I'm sure if we did a similar look at other metro areas in the Midwest, Detroit, Minneapolis, St. Paul, we'd probably get the same, the same data. In terms of the Latino vote, yeah, that's a greater concern now because it used to be that you could, as a Democratic, and my background is as a Democratic strategist, we used to be able to tap into the non-Cuban Hispanic vote. Okay, the Cuban vote is problematic. It's always been problematic. That goes back to the Bay of Pigs, unfortunately. That's probably a conversation left for another day. But non-Cuban Hispanics now, because of, 
I want to say some of the authoritarian impulses of the Republicans, MAGA, authoritarianism, the strongman routine of both Trump and DeSantis have now, particularly males, non-Cuban Latino males like the machismo of Trump. They like the perceived machismo of DeSantis, and they're drifting in that direction. Now, is it a permanent realignment? I don't think it is. I think it's based very much around these kind of personality cults connected to Trump and DeSantis, but it is a concern. And that's probably what we're seeing in other states with large Hispanic populations as well. All right. Speaking of people with a certain unearned machismo and a lot of SDE going on, let's talk about Ron DeSantis. I remember when he was running for governor and boy, were his ads obnoxious. He's got those bricks, those assemble them yourselves, cardboard bricks that your kids can build with. And he's got his kids as props in the ad saying, look, we're going to build the wall. What a putz. So at the time, I was thinking to myself, all right, this guy, he seems like a real D-lister as a political talent. And maybe he will fall up into the governorship of Florida. I would never have tapped him as this is a future leading presidential candidate for the Republican Party. And yet here we are. Who is this guy? Let's take a break. We'll be right back. So what's really funny is that when he ran uh, for U.S. Senate before Marco Rubio dropped out of the presidential race, the day, day, the last potential day he could qualify for the Senate race, he dropped out of the presidential race in 2016. DeSantis was getting zero traction in that Republican primary against some very more established Republican names. He was this guy that very much a beneficiary of, of what we talked about with the primary when he got elected to Congress. He was this Fed sock lawyer who got through a primary because he didn't have to get 50%. And was just this awkward character, even people in his district would say that even the Republicans in his district would mock the guy. Um, And he got through 2018 because I think the political establishment was asleep. The Republican establishment in this state, and there's no coincidence you have so many never Trumpers, never Trump Republicans that have come out of Florida, people like former Congressman Dave Jolly, among others. I don't think really understood the dynamic of the ability of a MAGA candidate to win a primary for governor. And he won that primary against the establishment candidate, against Adam Putnam, who had served in office from the time he was 21 onward. He's a former classmate of mine at the University of Florida, Congressman Putnam was. And someone I will say who has some talent. He has some intelligence. And as a former congressional staffer, you can tell People who are like at the staff level, we have shorthand to refer to members of Congress. Like back when there were earmarks and people were just there to get, you'd refer to certain members of Congress. Like that, that one's just a porker. Like (laughs) as if they were like, they're just here. They're a product of a machine. It was their turn. It's like the Eddie Murphy movie, The Distinguished Gentleman. Maybe someone died and they happened to share the same name. But then there were people who have real, have something going for them. Like they're smart or they're personable, they're a great retail politician. You can tell that there's a talent there. And Adam Putnam, who hasn't really panned out for him, he rose in Republican leadership in the U.S. House, and then it went south. He, didn't he end up as like agriculture commissioner? Yeah, and, and actually, you know, what happened to him in the House may be instructive to this whole conversation, right? He gets ousted after the 2008 election. The GOP conference replaces him with Mike Pence. And that kind of tells you the direction of the GOP. And it's wow. something that... And I think John Boehner, at that point, they had to anticipate it. 
what right. was coming. That brilliant point. No, I, you know what? I had forgotten that. That's exactly right. And so you have this guy, but again, he's talented. There's just no not doubt. a place for him. Look, I was working politically in, in New Hampshire and there's a former congressman. He came up on the show yesterday, Jeb Bradley. He's now oh. the state Senate president in New Hampshire. And look, I worked in the state Senate. I had a crash Davis career. I went from working at the congressional level to the state Senate level. And so <laughs> I, when I was working in the state Senate, there were a lot of talented people. Don't get me wrong. I'm not denigrating any of the state senators. But Jeb Bradley is someone who you can tell when you talk to the guy. Here is someone who is intelligent, who has a great memory. He's good with people. He connects dots. He's got some charisma. And you can tell that he's just a talent level that's a cut above. But there was no place for him in today's Republican Party in Congress. And so now he's the state Senate president in New Hampshire. Putnam strikes me as a guy like that. But anyway, we're way off track. We were talking DeSantis. Yeah, but I, it's very important to talk about Putnam because you understand the kind of establishment Republican that Republican leadership in this state still thought was the kind of essence of the party. Right. Then you have this guy come out of right field, basically, and knock him off in a primary. I see what you did Trump's there. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> with Trump's endorsement. And he ends up being somebody that establishment Republicans became so fearful of because DeSantis is a guy that has very little in the way of personal charisma. He has very little of the qualities you talk about in a guy like Jeb Bradley or Adam Putnam, the, the retail politics, the memory, institutional memory, right? This is something that stripped DeSantis up time and again. He might be this FedSoc trained guy who's been indoctrinated in their strict constructionist view of the U.S. Constitution, but he actually knows very little about the state of Florida. And right. he doesn't know state law very well. He doesn't know our state constitution very well. So there's been this effort by him to roll over the GOP establishment. And what's happened is so many of them have either become marginalized or they've just fallen in line thinking, okay, this is a flavor of the month. It's going to pass. We will be able to reassert ourselves. It's the same naivety we saw on the national level with the people who said, okay, Trump is just a, a temporary thing. We'll get what we want. We'll get three Supreme Court justices, blah, blah, blah. And then things will be normal again. A lot of people in Florida made the same mistake with DeSantis. I want to set up a video that we put out on the Blue Amp channel yesterday about how Ron DeSantis has stepped on not one, but two rakes in the last couple <laughs> of weeks and really a painful face smacks that were, they were in goals yeah. for the guy. And, but I want to get to that via an observation that you made on the Florida squeeze a couple of days ago, you were writing about Ron DeSantis and you wrote great writing, by the way, the, you, you were right you. at the top of the show. You are a writer. Ron DeSantis <laughs> operates more on pure instinct and feel than any high ranking elected official I've ever seen in my life. Never before has someone been so convinced of their own immortality that they reject all professional advice or polling data? But it must be said, in the small pond of Florida politics, which is filled with grifting consultants in both parties and a general lack of worldliness and critical thinking skills, DeSantis has thrived because the bottom line is he is smarter than most that do politics professionally in this state. And here's the line of the next graph that I really love. But Florida is not the United States of America. And Disney is not a typical low-level Florida politico that grips through life. What you're setting up there 
is what's become somewhere between sort of a whispered conversation among national political analysts and reporters and a flat out, like on the surface, people are writing articles about it, which is this guy is not ready for prime time. He, as you just set up so well, he fumbled his way through and made it through a primary, found himself in this position. And now he's trying to migrate to the national stage and he's going to find that this ain't all Florida. What are you, what were you getting at in that article? What do you think is the essential feature of DeSantis that is going to not do well under the bright national lights? So several things, but I think the first thing I was trying to get at is that this is a guy that does not take being handled by experts, being handled by political operatives, by people who are staff people who are knowledgeable about public policy. He doesn't take well to being handled by any of those people, those types of people. He thinks he knows better than all of them, which is somewhat similar to Donald Trump. But at times we'd see Trump be reined in, right, by his staff. DeSantis can't be. DeSantis is actually even more extreme in this idea that he's very instinctive and very impulsive. Now, he sells it better and may appear more disciplined than Trump, but he really isn't. And then the other point on this that I think is so important is that he's a guy that has absolute, an absolute sense of destiny, that he and his small cadre of advisors, which are basically his family, right, and a very small tight circle of people who were not traditionally involved in GOP politics. That's kind of similar to Trump, right? But Trump has more of them. But people who are not your, your classic political operatives or staffers on Capitol Hill or people who work on K Street, right? He rejects all those types of people, the people who actually have the expertise that could shape and mold him in a fashion where he would be potentially a successful national candidate. He rejects all those forces and has this sense of destiny and immortality about himself that leads him to make, I think, some very sloppy errors. And while he's gotten away with it in Florida, to an extent, he's gotten away with it electorally. He has not gotten away with it legally. There are more, there's more litigation involving the state and laws that he signed that then ran afoul of constitutional standards in the state, let alone federal constitutional standards, that the state's spending a ton of money defending these, these, these laws. He's got a real issue with being handled, I guess would be the 30-second takeaway. And we know that politicians that are not handled and are not good on the stump don't make it. And we have countless examples of this in both parties through the nominating processes in the last 50 years. And this is a well-known phenomenon in politics, actually in many spheres of life. But in politics and among political operatives, you see politicians who have been successful at the local level. And what they've done so far has worked for them. And they begin to get a little bit of they get in their own heads that, hey, I've got something here. I've got the magic formula. I'm amazing. And I'm just going to keep porting this up the chain of levels of elected office. And it's not often true. Sometimes people are such incredible political talents. Barack Obama being a, an example, like this was a guy who was an amazing political talent, but he was also smart enough to hire David Axelrod, political professionals who could get him where he wanted to go. I want to keep going down the road of, there, there have been these recent examples of rake stepping. One of them is the Florida book ban, 
Now, I know he's been doing a lot of, it's not really a book ban. That's all fake news, blah, blah, blah. If you go to Blue Amp and you watch our most recent video about how Ron DeSantis stepped on rakes, you will see the CBS Evening News leading with, yeah, there are 176 books that, that have been pulled from library shelves because they run afoul of Ron DeSantis's book ban. This is a real thing. And now Democrats are managing to make hay out of it by trying to ban Ron DeSantis's book. Uh, how did he end up in this like weird own goal situation? Let's take a break. We'll be right back. So the own goals are a direct result of him not actually interacting with the population at large or the media. I know we've talked about the right-wing ecosystem, and you've done it a lot on the Blue Amp channel, about the right-wing media ecosystem that has supported Trump and supported, going back to Newt Gingrich, right? It's been a, it's been a 30-year process. Ron DeSantis, I've never seen a guy as entirely dependent on that ecosystem as he is. He doesn't mm. do, you mentioned CBS Evening News. He doesn't do interviews with CBS, NBC, CNN, ABC, any of the mainstream television networks. He doesn't do interviews with the New York Times or Washington Post. He bashes them all the time. But unlike Trump, right, Trump had this backline to Maggie Haberman, right? <laughs> he'd be bashing the New York Times in, on Twitter, and then minutes later, he'd be saying to Maggie Haberman, hey, here's some off-the-record information. DeSantis doesn't do that. His entire media landscape for him is the Daily Caller, any Murdoch-owned publication, right? So New York Post, Fox News, Wall Street Journal, and then these kind of right-wing blog sites that had popped up in the Trump era, right? These things that didn't even exist in 2016 that he will give exclusive interviews to or he will talk to. And those people are a feedback loop for him. Oh yeah, book bans are great, right? Ban everything, let's own the libs. And that's why he makes these sorts of mistakes, why he's committing own goal after own goal. This was a soccer match, he'd be down 5-0 already, right? So he's, he's really a product of what Gingrich, Trump, and to a certain extent, the Tea Party, the Bush era created, which is this right-wing Rupert Murdoch media ecosystem where they're in such a feedback loop, they're in such a bubble, they're not able to even comprehend what the reaction to this stuff will be. And what about the other rake, which is he decided to pick a fight with Disney for reasons that I almost don't want to give the backstory here because I'm afraid it'll bore people because it involves tax policy and special districts and roads and boards and forget all of that. I think the 30,000 foot view on it is he decided that picking a fight with Disney was good because it would allow him to go on a culture war because somehow they were too gay or they were too woke or they were too woke about being gay and Jafar comes in here and it's that one's not gone well for him either. What's why? What's happening with that? Yeah, and this is really bizarre because there's no anti-Disney constituency nationally. There aren't people, Disney doesn't elicit the sort of reaction that even Amazon or Apple do, right? Tech companies do elicit that reaction, unfortunately, from some, uh, I don't agree with that, that view, but with some in the hinterland. Disney does not. It's got this image of a very kind of family, wholesome type company, and it's a big media company as well that pumps out lots of content. I think DeSantis felt like he could try and remake that image and create a bogeyman that would give him some sort of lane that Trump is not in, including 
this, the gay issue, right? Bashing gays is something that we didn't really see from Trump, right? That wasn't really a feature of the MAGA movement until DeSantis made it an issue after Trump was out of office. 2021 is when he first started raising this issue of, quote, grooming, and has gone, he's gone crazy on it. And the history of this is that there was a lot of gay bashing in the GOP in the 70s and 80s, and half of those people ended up being outed themselves. Some of them, Bob Bauman, among others, there were more than just him. But DeSantis has decided to tap into this issue because he maybe thinks that there's some lane that that Trump is not in. And then also he can create this anti-corporate bona fides that he doesn't have because he's not he's not a natural populist. So it's a really bizarre company to take on. It's a company that's very popular and has a wholesome image. And I think DeSantis's motivation for this was not more than probably thinking, again, because of his own instincts, hey, this is something that Trump hasn't done. Trump hasn't bashed gays. Trump hasn't taken on a big corporation like Disney. He's taken on, right, all these kind of like low-level things, or he's just bashed people personally. And it's blowing up in his face. And it's also something that has, I think, hurt the state in the sense that other companies don't want to relocate here in terms of um, seeing the kind of punitive actions that the governor and the GOP as a whole, because they went along with this, right? They're complicit as well. The GOP legislature, businesses don't want to relocate to Florida because they see this. So I don't know why DeSantis has kept going on the issue, the gay issue and all this stuff, other than maybe he thinks he gets evangelical support against Trump because of it. That's That might be the play that's left, but still, he's got to clean up his mess with Disney, which he doesn't seem willing to do. He's digging deeper and deeper into it. Now talking about of raising taxes, right? That was the most recent message. I'm going to raise taxes and I'm going to force tolls on the roads within the Disney property and all these things that actually will turn off your traditional economic conservatives. Yeah, I. it is mystifying the political thinking here. And it goes back to what you were saying a moment ago, which is I just wonder who's on his team and who he's listening to. Did Ron DeSantis think he was going to win by doing this. His problem isn't so much that he has to appeal to conservatives. He's got like MAGA voters who are already with Trump and was his thinking, all right, I'm a MAGA voter. I love Donald Trump. I just wish he were more bigoted. That's what I need. I need (laughs) Trump, but like more, like he needs to hate gay people a lot. Can I get that? I just, maybe the thinking was what you said before. He's auditioning to be the Fox News candidate. And so he's going to get a lot of golf claps from Fox and Friends and Hannity and Tucker. And so maybe he just needs to win that constituency first. But it is baffling. Here's another angle that you've written about on the Florida squeeze that I think is interesting is that his economic record in Florida is a lot crappier than it than he's talked about or that it might seem on the surface. Bill Schur got into this in Washington Monthly where he asked the question, is Ron DeSantis the Republican Michael Dukakis? What is that economic record and why is that not ready for prime time either? Yeah, I think DeSantis follows, this is a Tea Party thing that led into DeSantis where you don't attract the sort of professional jobs to the state. You're, what DeSantis and 
the Republicans, I would say since about 2012 have done in this state is attract a lot of low wage jobs, low wage earners. They've turned off big companies. They haven't, they haven't done the things necessary to create an environment where companies are comfortable relocating to the state of Florida because the educational system is good. The infrastructure is good. These sorts of things that and it's not necessarily a GOP issue nationally because we see companies move to Texas and to Georgia and Virginia, although Virginia has been under Democratic control for part of that period. They're not coming to Florida. And you're seeing the cost of living spike in just an absolutely uncontrollable spiral, which includes insurance going through the roof and DeSantis and the state legislature being absolutely unwilling to rein in the insurance companies in this state. And then you have rent that's out of control. And you have, because of the transient nature of Florida, you have a lot of, a lot more people who rent here than in most other states. There's been no effort at rent stabilization. In fact, the legislature wants to prevent local governments from doing their jobs for their local constituents and stabilizing rent or doing the sort of things that mitigate the cost of living crisis. So that's another aspect of DeSantis's rule, which is different than maybe what we saw at the national level by Trump. Trump would tweet, liberate Michigan, liberate Minnesota, all these Democratic-run states, but he would never actually tangibly do anything about it other than getting angry on Twitter first thing in the morning. DeSantis has worked meticulously, I would say, to try and preempt the prerogatives of local governments in urban areas that are controlled by Democrats to make sure they can't do the sort of things to benefit their residents, the people who vote for them and put local governments into office that they want, whether it's economic stuff like rent stabilization and crop insurance and cost of living, or even social issues like guns. They want to preempt local authorities from doing anything about guns or COVID. So that's another aspect of DeSantis. Maybe that's, again, another lane he thinks maybe if I'm more authoritarian than Trump, I'm more bigoted than Trump. So I make the gay issue a big issue. And he's got, DeSantis has got this kind of wholesome family image. He's, his wife, his closest advisor, he's got a couple of kids. So he kind of photographs better than Trump with multiple divorces, multiple affairs, right? So maybe that's his play is, oh, I'm an evangelical. I'm more bigoted. I'm going after gays in a way he never did. And- I have put my foot on the Democrats who control local government and I've crushed them and I've effectively become a dictator. So maybe that's his, what he wants to do, but it doesn't seem to be playing with the GOP primary electorate thus far. So you have a guy who isn't particularly bright. He's not particularly personable. He's not particularly well-liked by the people around him. And indeed, in his own party, he seems to be more feared than loved. He does not do well on any media outside of Fox and Newsmax. And yet, but he really could win. He really could win. And there was a fascinating article about this on NBC, an inside view on what they call Ron DeSantis's long haul strategy against Trump, which is basically we're not going to oversweat the early states, the Iowas, the New Hampshires. This isn't about I need to make a big name for myself by overperforming. We just need to stay in the conversation. Despite their reputations, Iowa and New Hampshire are not particularly predictive of who's going to win the nomination for either party. So their thinking is, this is going to turn into a state-by-state, delegate-by-delegate scrap. And they think that whatever team he's assembled, 
knows those delegate rules, knows those relationships, the idiosyncrasies locally better than the Trump team, and that they're going to eke this out. So that's one pathway here. The other pathway seems to be they're kind of not against the idea that Trump is going to implode legally and that finally the fever will break in the Republican Party and enough MAGA people will say a real version of my joke a moment ago. It's I'm done with Trump. I want someone who's as close to that as possible. Oh, look, DeSantis, he seems pretty close. What are his odds? That's a risky strategy, but perhaps they can pull it off because, again, there's all these institutional advantages for Trump in Iowa and New Hampshire, right? And that's something that maybe DeSantis wisely has realized he can't overcome. The delegate relationships, we've seen this, uh, 76 is the classic example, right, in the GOP, the Reagan-Ford race, where I think the relationships Ford had or Ford's people had with various delegates carried them over over the line, the Republican Party, is or, much or the more... Obama team, understanding the nature yes, of the nominating Clinton, conventions yeah. on the Democratic side, or even back to Kennedy Johnson and some of the spade work that the Kennedy team did over Johnson, kind of misunderstood how the convention process. But yes, you're right. There's a rich history there. Yeah, there's the classic scene in the uh, Rob Reiner movie, LBJ, where the J RFK character walks into the elevator and LBJ's like, how do you know? And the RFK character is, because I can count. Because <laughs> he right. counted the delegates, right? Yes. That's all you need to be able to do in politics is can you count and can you read? That's it. <laughs> so it is a plausible strategy, but I think what it would depend on is DeSantis winning big in the South, right? It would depend on him keeping his home territory of Florida where Trump has, Trump is a home kind of candidate also, as you mentioned at the outset, and maintaining those delegate relationships and hoping the other the caveat is if Trump implodes and the fever breaks. Now we've seen in this kind of condensed primary calendar, things happen really quickly, right? Momentum carry people over the line quickly. We saw it with Biden in, in 2020. We saw it in 2012 with Romney when it, it looked like there were 10, eight to 10 different potential GOP candidates, he comes out of Iowa, New Hampshire, really strong, cruises to the nomination. It, so it can happen, but I just think it's not, I think it's a strategy of someone who doesn't feel very confident going head to head in the arena with Trump. And to think after eight years or the eight years at that point, seven years at this point, that the fever is going to break in the Republican Party among the Republican electorate is hopelessly naive. It doesn't matter how many of the Fox News personalities you have behind you, how much of the conservative media apparatus you have behind you. Because one thing that I think Trump has done that maybe isn't talked about enough is that he is the guy setting the agenda, right? Fox is reacting to him. Murdoch is reacting to him. They have to, Trump says something stupid on, or not, not on Twitter anymore, on Truth Social, and they have to parrot it, right? He's setting the agenda. DeSantis is very much a product of, okay, the New York Post said this morning, so I'm going to shout it from the rooftop. Ah. And I don't think they necessarily have that ability, the Murdoch media, to set the agenda anymore, as long as Trump is around. He sets the agenda. That is a fascinating insight. You know what? That's such a good insight that I think we need to leave the conversation about Trump, DeSantis, the future of the Republican Party, the presidential campaign 
there. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I really appreciate it. I hope people will check out and subscribe to The Florida Squeeze. You will learn a lot and it will be a resource you'll be very happy to have as we go through the crazy next 18 months. Great, thank you so much for having me.